Welcome to How to Save a Planet. I'm Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is the show about what we need to do to address climate change and how we make those things happen. Hey, Fancy. Hey, Doc. Want to know where I've been spending a lot of my time lately? I do. I've been upstate New York on my mom's farm where she lives, and sometimes, delightfully, that entails hanging out with some very, very cute tiny baby chickens. What's your favorite thing about baby chickens? My favorite thing about baby chickens is that they'll be like running around, having snacks, hanging out with each other, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they will just stop. Their eyes will slowly close. They will slowly oh. bend their legs and just sit down wherever they are and take a nap. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like oh, my Overwhelmingly God. adorable. Mm-hmm. And it's my job, actually, to hang out with them and cuddle with them so that they get used to people and so they don't peck us when they get older, which is honestly the best farm chore you could possibly imagine being assigned. <laughs> That's not what I think of when I think of, like, sort of grueling farm work. It's like cuddling chickens. There's, like, the shoveling (laughs) part, but then there's also the, like, Ayana, I need you to go cuddle with those baby chickens. But, Alex, as you mentioned, farming is not just about interactions with tiny, adorable creatures. Mm -hmm. It is a lot of hard work. And my mom's place is quite different than what you think of as a conventional farm. In addition to the fact that it's not, like, really a a big commercial operation at all, the most important thing about it is that it is regenerative and organic. And regenerative farming is something that we talked about in a previous episode of How to Save a Planet. And we had so much fun doing that episode and learned so much that we are going to share that episode with you again this week. It all starts last summer when we took a little field trip. Oh, look at this lovely house with like a stucco base and looks like a ski lodge sort of or a Swiss chalet a little bit. A little bit chalet. Actually, it was a farm. Yay, we're here. The main building just gave us an apres ski vibe. And we were visiting this farm to talk to an expert about the very thing that our listeners were writing to us about, regenerative agriculture. Look at all these tomato plants. The way we've primarily grown our food, the way we farm, is a major contributor to climate change. Right now, depending how you count it, around 10% of greenhouse gas emissions globally can be traced to agricultural production. And in the U.S., for decades, these agricultural emissions have been on the rise. But this farm is doing things differently. Oh, wow. This farm is practicing what's called regenerative agriculture which means it's growing its food in a way that actually removes carbon from the atmosphere. That's right. Not only does it not add carbon, like a lot of agriculture does, it actually removes it. This farm, it's not the problem. It's actually part of the solution. And this carbon capture magic doesn't require some crazy expensive high-tech tractors or even new technology at all. It involves using a lot of these. And these. Oh my gosh, these little peepers. And these. All the bees and butterflies. And doing away with one of the oldest pieces of technology that humans have crafted. 
On today's episode, we'll meet two regenerative farmers, two very different ones. One, a first-generation back-to-the-land farmer on a small farm in upstate New York, raising fruits and vegetables for the local community. The other, a third-generation farmer on a much larger farm, nearly a 1,000 acres, selling corn and soybeans to big industrial processors. The thing they share in common? They are bucking centuries of conventional wisdom about how to farm. And they're paying way more attention to something that's often overlooked. Dirt. The soil. So on today's episode, the climate solution beneath our feet and how making simple changes in the way we farm can harness the incredible power of soil to help save the planet. That's coming up in a minute. The farm Alex and I visited over the summer in upstate New York is a cooperative that's led by Leah Penniman and her family. Here comes somebody. Nice to meet you. Hi. I'm Alex. Hi. Nice to meet you. Um, Thank you for having us. Of course. Let me show you all. um... Leah Penniman opened the farm we're visiting, named Soulfire Farm, in 2010. She's also an author. She wrote a book called Farming While Black. And in the anthology I co-edited, All We Can Save, she wrote an essay called Black Gold about how Afro-Indigenous farming practices can help heal the land and our relationships with it. And as a Black farmer, Leah is something of a rarity. The vast majority of farmers in the United States, 95%, are white. Leah says Black farmers are now so scarce that sometimes people don't know what to make of her. She runs these programs on her farm where she'll bring kids in, mostly Black kids from surrounding cities like Albany or Troy or Hartford or even New York City, and show them what life is like on a working farm. A lot of their first reaction is like, are y'all slaves? Why are you stupid? I don't get dirty. You know, my great-grandpa left the peanut picking behind. All those things, right? It's very much part of our Mm -hmm. cultural heritage, this trauma, um, tragically so. Because people don't know, like... The history. The history. Mm -hmm. It's important. It's not like black people forgot to buy land and didn't care about the soil. (laughs) (laughs) That is not what happened. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty devastating history. Um, Here in the U.S., that devastating history for black people and farming starts, of course, with slavery. But even after slavery ended, the trauma continued. You know, after emancipation in 1865, Reverend Garrison Frazier and a bunch of black clergy got together with... um, General Sherman of the Union Army to make a plan. And the the black pastors were like, we all we need is land, actually. We need land and a little bit of space mm-hmm. and we'll be good. And that promise of 40 acres and, and a mule came out of the meeting. This promise of 40 acres and later also a mule, that was what General Sherman said he would give the newly freed black people in parts of the South. This was, at its heart, a very simple and straightforward form of reparations. It was essentially a token for centuries of enslavement. Each Black family was to be given 40 acres of land upon which they could set up their own farms and start to generate income and wealth for themselves. And if that plan had actually been enacted, if 400,000 acres of land had actually been turned over to newly freed Black people in the South— I mean, who knows how things might have turned out. Yeah. We almost certainly would not have the same kinds of wealth gaps that we see today between white and black households, same kinds of systemic inequities we see. But it did not play out that way. 
There was a big system of land redistribution called the Homestead Act, where land was given to settlers in the Midwest in exchange for the promise to farm it. But that land went mostly to white people, and that land was often taken by force from Native Americans. So on the one hand, the U.S. government was just giving away stolen land, mostly to white people. And on the other hand, this promise of 40 acres and a mule for Black people was reneged. And it's not just that the promise was broken, but Southern states were passing laws restricting Black people's access to voting and enforcing a system of segregation. And slavery was replaced with this sharecropping system that left many newly freed Black people impoverished or shackled with debt. And yet, despite all of that, Black people still managed to acquire land. You know, Black people managed to save money and purchase almost 16 million acres of land by 1910. 16 million acres. 16 million acres, which was 14% of the nation's farms. And uh, almost all of that is gone. And it's gone mostly because of discrimination by the USDA. Uh, The U.S. Department of Agriculture gives out things like loans, crop insurance, crop allotments, technical assistance, and they would give these things to white farmers, but not to black farmers. And so like a, like a storm comes or something happens, a drought or something like that, where a crop gets wiped out, the white farmer's fine because they were able to get crop they insurance. They get money from the government. Yeah. And then, uh, and then bailouts the for white farmers. Like, yeah. There yeah. was bailouts for white farmers. But not, of course, for black farmers. And so when droughts or floods hit, black farmers had no safety net and were more likely to lose their land. But this decline in black farms wasn't just due to racist institutions like the USDA. There was also deliberate campaigns of violence to drive black people off their land. The Ku Klux Klan and the White Citizens Council um, and the White Caps, so these white supremacist terrorist organizations, were very upset about this black land ownership trend in the early 1900s. They wanted black people to stay in their place, which was on the plantation sharecropping. They were worried about the economic fallout of black economic independence. And so they punished black landowners. I mean, they literally burned down their houses, they lynched people, and they stole their deeds. Uh, There's over 4,000 documented cases of these murders. um, And... And that was the major push factor of the Great Migration. You know, it wasn't just opportunities in the North during World War I to work in factories. It was like we're running for our lives because as soon as we try to start our own businesses, you know, Black Wall Street being another example, people burn them to the ground. So all that to say, you know, here we arrive at a time where we went from 14% of the nation's farms down to about 1.5%. Are black-owned. Uh, are black-owned. Um, 1.5% of farms are black-owned. From 14% to one and a half percent. So yeah, Alex, given this context, right, this long and painful history, it's certainly not surprising that some of the Black kids who visit Leah's farm are dubious about this whole working the land thing. Yeah, but Leah, she loves farming. Oh, yeah. It was super clear from from being yeah. there with her. from and And the way she tells it, from the first minute she ever set foot on a farm, she knew that this is what she wanted to do. And so she's been on this mission to repair the broken relationship that many Black people have with agriculture. And she's doing that by going deeper into the history of Black people and farming, to before slavery, to the traditions of Black Americans' African ancestors. And she's employing those centuries-old traditions on her 21st century farm. And so we need to know that part of the history, too, and take pride in that, in this noble Black agrarian tradition. And we find that, you know, exploring that narrative uh, provides a point of connection, um, in addition to, obviously, the hands-on experience of just being on the land. So this link to a proud Black agrarian past, that's one of the reasons Leah farms the way she does. 
But there's another reason, too. There's a lot of new science saying that these practices could be a significant part of our climate solutions. Yeah, that's right. A bunch of the practices that Leah uses on her farm, including many of the indigenous practices she's adopted, taken together, they have a name, regenerative farming. Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the thing our listeners were asking about. Right. And it's called regenerative farming because it actually repairs the soil and it takes the carbon from the atmosphere where it's causing global warming and stores it underground in the soil itself. This term regenerative farming has become pretty trendy only recently. So what it actually entails may still be new for lots of listeners. And I think it's important to say that this is different from organic farming. Right. Right. To have food certified as organic actually has a legal definition from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which primarily means that the use of pesticides and GMOs are prohibited. Whereas regenerative farming refers to a broad set of practices, and for now, there's no official standard for certification, right? There's no legal definition of what that means. So a lot of people are just throwing the term around, even though their practices are not what we would consider sustainable, per se. Mm -hmm. But the farmers we talk to in today's episode take this concept of regeneration really seriously, And a farm can be organic or regenerative or both or neither. Right. And today we are focusing just on the regenerative piece. And so to show us what regenerative farming looks like on her farm, Leah Penniman took us on a tour. So we're walking through, you know, center campus of Soulfire Farms. So over to my right. It's this super lush mixture of pasture and forest and cropland. It's the kind of place that, like, you, I don't know, for me, as a city boy, it seems like this incredibly (laughs) fertile part of the world where every seed you drop in the ground will just, like, sprout. But Leah says that when she and her family first bought the farm... It didn't look like this at all. And when we first arrived here, this was very heavy clay, severely eroded soil. Um, The extension agent came out and was like, you are stupid if you want to farm here. You will never be able to farm here. That's the agricultural extension agent. These are experts who go out into the field to help farmers grow their crops. And the reason the agent said that was because the soil was incredibly degraded. It was lacking a bunch of the nutrients that plants need in order to grow. Nutrients like nitrogen and potassium and phosphorus. And what most modern farmers do when they're faced with nutrient-poor soil is use industrial fertilizers, these chemicals that contain the nutrients that plants need. But Leah didn't want to do that. And that's because most industrial fertilizers have a pretty heavy environmental impact. A lot of the materials in them are derived from fossil fuels like methane or petroleum, or they're derived from materials that are mined from the earth, like phosphate. And then all these heaps of fertilizers that we're applying end up running off into streams and rivers into the sea and really messing up the balance of ecosystems. And so instead of using these industrial fertilizers, Leah employed a practice from regenerative farming, a very, very old technology known as... Animal poop. (laughs) (laughs) The first thing we did was actually run the animals through because they tend to eat noxious weeds and invasive plants, so that's wonderful. They poop all over the place and it adds all this great nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium. Poop! Also has phosphorus and nitrogen. (laughs) (laughs) So step one of restoring soil health at Soulfire Farm 
was for two years to just let the animals eat whatever was growing in the weedy fields and have those animals poop everywhere. And two years of pooping later, there was finally (laughs) enough nutrients in the soil that Leah and her family could finally start planting. But But. not the lettuces and the corn and strawberries that she has growing there now. Yeah, not quite yet, because first they needed to employ another regenerative agriculture technique, and that is cover cropping. Yeah, cover cropping. It's this practice of planting a field or tract of land with a crop that you are not going to harvest for food. And sometimes you do this just to keep the loose, unplanted soil from blowing away. In this case, Leah is doing it also to help restore nutrients to the soil. So, for example, there are certain kinds of plants called nitrogen fixers. These are plants that actually take nitrogen out of the atmosphere and put it into the soil, like hold it there or fix it there. And these little magical nitrogen fixers, they do what industrial fertilizer does, but naturally through microbial activity in the soil. So then we did two years of of cover cropping, you know, clovers and uh, rye, sorghum, Sudan grass, heavy nitrogen fixers, and... Year four, we were ready to plant. And then every year we're adding. So just keep building, building, building. And so right now, if we're looking at, we're in the middle and it's sort of like there's a, there's a lane between these two sort of sections of the farm. On the left, to my left, is cover crop. That's the buckwheat. Yeah. And then to my right is, looks Rose like cabbage. Beautiful and vegetables. Kale and beautiful, just gorgeous, various kinds Lettuces. of like vegetables. Yeah, callaloo, um, cilantro, basil, onions, uh, broccolini, which I like more than broccoli. And everywhere you look on this farm, there are examples of these regenerative practices in use. For example, each spring before they plant, they let these critters out into the field. These are some chatty folks. Geese. We use the animals to naturally fertilize. Um, everything before we plant our crops. And so it's, they're part of our rotation. The geese are in these movable pens. And so they let them graze on one section of the field at a time. They eat all the grass or weeds and stuff in a given area, they poop all over. And then Leah moves the, the fencing section onto the next section of the field. And that part where the geese spent all that time eating and pooping, it's now ready for planting. And this holistic way of thinking about the farm, right, seeing it as an ecosystem where the animals support the plants and the plants support the animals, that's a theme that runs through a lot of practices that Leah uses as the foundation for her approach to farming. Leah leads us to this one section of the farm, which contains a whole bunch of plants all growing together. It's called a Jardin La Coup. It's a Haitian Creole house garden with apple trees that are just like surrounded by all of these beneficial herbs. Bee balm, calendula, mint, echinacea, um, comfrey, just dozens of others. And they all work together. So this is, oh, this is an agroforest, so right? This is like the ideal epitome of regenerative agriculture because all of these wonderful plants are just taking care of each other and there's not a lot of human management. It's a permanent system. So all these practices that Leah's employing, cover cropping, using animals to naturally fertilize fields, growing a diversity of species, nurturing, regenerating the soil, and thinking of the farm as an ecosystem. These are all core to regenerative farming. But there's one more piece. Farming regeneratively often means giving up on one technology that has been central to how many people have farmed for centuries, the plow. The plow. And Ayana, the plow 
is one of these tools that I feel like I know the word, I've heard about it, but I don't actually know what it looks like. You've probably seen plows, right? I have seen plows. I mean, there's plow attachments on big tractors, but like the traditional one that was often pushed by people or dragged behind horses is like a wedge, like a triangle that digs into the soil and sort of separates it and turns it over. Right. And it's break, it digs these deep furrows in the soil and turns over the earth. Yeah. And it takes a field that's like a field of weeds or a field of like cut down and harvested crops and turns it into this field of road crumbly dirt that makes it easier to plant seeds. So like when you see a big flat field that's just dirt, that is a field that has probably been plowed. But Leah says there's a problem with the plow. The problem is that when you turn up the soil, it's kind of like imagine you and your family are all sitting down to dinner and someone takes your house, flips it upside down and shakes it. And so everything <laughs> that, you know, your whole family well, like, falls on the ceiling. There's yeah. a mess everywhere. And in this metaphor, my family is like a, a subsoil. Okay. Yeah. So in this metaphor, <laughs> your family is a bunch of soil organisms. And so with a tiller, what you're doing is taking the home where everyone has a job, right? The earth, earthworms have a job and the nematodes and, you know, the microbes. And their job is to is decomposition and, and releasing soil nutrients. And you just like messed up their home. And so they need to spend all their time getting their home back together before they can do their work. You've just, you're an ecosystem destroyer, right? When you do tillage. But in biological farming, we're actually partnering with these soil microbes, you know, to release nutrients and create, uh, capture soil moisture and create tilth and all of that. And there's this one other huge thing that these soil organisms do if left undisturbed by plowing. They capture carbon. Diana, this is the part of the podcast that is going to require a brief bit of explanation. Mm -hmm. So should we just like step away from Leah's farm for a second? Are you ready to do some explaining, Doc? Are you like asking me, do I want to get into the nerdy details of something? Like as if you don't already know what my answer is going to (laughs) be. Exactly. I knew exactly what you were going to say. Yes, good. Here for it. Every time. (laughs) It's fun because I was thinking about how to explain this to people last night. And and I hit on this thing that I'm going to run by you. See if you think this is true. Okay. You can think of carbon as having two big forms for our purposes. There's carbon that's in greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. That's the carbon in like CO2 and methane. And then there's the carbon that makes up all living things. Like my body is made up of a bunch of carbon. Your body is made up of a bunch of carbon. Yeah, after hydrogen and oxygen, carbon is the most common element in our bodies. And if you think about trees and flowers and the little organisms in the soil, they're all made up of, among other things, lots of carbon. And so for a millennia before the Industrial Revolution, the carbon that was in the air in the form of carbon dioxide and the carbon that was in all of us. All of us being the currently living and formerly living things of the earth. (laughs) Yeah, all of that was in equilibrium, right? There was always this exchange. The plants would take up CO2 out of the air and then turn it into other living things. Until, of course, we discovered this incredible stuff oil. Fossil fuels. Which is fossil fuels, which is really nothing but trouble. Just long dead, super compressed, formerly living things like algae and peat moss that have been dead for a long time and then pressed together and they turn into fossil fuels. And we burned a lot. Tons of it. And so now all the carbon in the atmosphere has been skyrocketing and that's what's causing global warming. And so 
actually, the way my mother loves to talk about this is there's nothing wrong with carbon. Right. It's where the carbon is. Like, we need to get it back into the soils out of being just super concentrated in the atmosphere. So, like, let's not vilify carbon, per se. That's what we're made of. Like, that's a good thing. Exactly. So most of us probably know the oil part of that story. Mm-hmm. We don't know the soil part of that story. Rhymes with oil. That's why I said it. Totally a different thing. So there are tons and tons of organisms living in the soil. The soil is an ecosystem as vast and rich and diverse as a rainforest. It's just happening on a much smaller scale. And underground. Mm-hmm. And all those organisms, like the bacterias and the insects and the little worms that are living undisturbed beneath the soil, going about their lives, eating each other, pooping out nutrients that the plants use, etc. Microscopic dance party happening there in the dirt. And the thing about that microscopic dance party <laughs> is that <laughs> for a lot of very, very complicated reasons, it tends to take the carbon that is in the atmosphere and over time accumulate that carbon in the soil. There's a lot of really cool science about this, but basically you can think about the plants as these kind of straws that suck up the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through photosynthesis, use it to build their stems and leaves and roots. And also some of those carbon compounds come out of their roots into the soil, feed the microbes, and help to nurture this whole ecosystem and sequester carbon from the atmosphere into the soil. So the carbon dioxide that goes into the dirt doesn't necessarily stay there forever. Some is released back into the atmosphere in just a few days or a few years, but some is stored there for decades or even centuries. And so you've got places like the Great Plains in the United States where this process was happening for thousands and thousands of years. And these soils gradually over time became these huge stores of carbon. But plowing, it releases that carbon. Through some complicated biological processes, it undoes all that work of carbon sequestration in the soil Mm -hmm. that's been happening over thousands of years. And with this industrialization of agriculture, with the tractors and massive plows that are like as big as buses, this intense plowing started to become the norm. And over the course of the 20th century, turning over the soil over and over, this carbon that had been stored in the soil ecosystem was getting released into the atmosphere. Modern agriculture has released a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. A lot. We don't know exactly how much, but we can tell you this. It's a lot. And I will say that learning about the plow's role in all of this, how Leah doesn't use one and how the plow is sort of responsible for all this carbon getting released into the atmosphere, it was a little weird for me. Like the plow, it's pretty central to the narrative we tell ourselves about Western civilization. It is. You know, it it goes way back. It's in the Bible, for example. You know, does a farmer always plow and never sow? That's from Isaiah 28, 24. But now I'm starting to wonder, you know, this tool that's often cast as the hero of human progress, could it actually be the villain? Back at Soulfire Farm, we put that question to Leah. You know, I, I always have trouble with trying to categorize anything as entirely good or entirely bad, yeah. you know? So I think with tilling, the reason that people till in the first place is to prepare the soil for planting. Um, it removes weeds, it aerates it makes the soil friable, meaning it's like workable. 
And so there's a lot of reasons to do it. And in the absence of another technology or another system, I get it. Yeah, in one sense, plowing is super effective. But the problem is, as one soil scientist, Dr. Jane Zelikova, shared with us, all these years that we've been plowing, we were essentially withdrawing carbon from a bank that we weren't really aware of. And now we're at the point where we have to start paying it back. It's like fiscal responsibility, but like carbon responsibility. (laughs) Yeah, we have to put back the carbon we've withdrawn over the years, back into the soil. And that's what's so revolutionary about what's going on on Soulfire Farm. They're using all these regenerative techniques to add carbon back into the soil. So they are fundamentally shifted what they're focusing on as farmers. Right. Like, that's the thing that really stood out. In the traditional sort of plow-based way of farming, soil is just the medium. The crops are the thing that you tend. But in this new slash old way of thinking about farming, the soil is the thing you tend. And if you tend the soil, then the soil will actually tend the crops. It's this complete refocus onto soil. Yeah, switcheroo. Flip it and reverse it. (laughs) Exactly. To quote Missy Elliott. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's not surprising that the soil on Leah's farm is something special. I was just looking at some soil tests. We had the Cornell Small Farms Program do a Uh really thorough soil life analysis all over the farm. And I'm super proud of this. Our soils in all areas were in the 95 plus percentile of soil health. So we've been able to restore the soil to its pre-colonial carbon levels, right? And what we imagined would be a pre-colonial overall health metric that we would expect to see really healthy results in our soil, but it's cool to have the data. You know? Yeah. <laughs> They're like... <laughs> I, 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 I live in Brooklyn and I have kids, and so I talk to a lot of Brooklyn parents, and like you sound exactly like <laughs> like a, a Brooklyn parent who's bragging about their gifted and talented child. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the 95th percentile. My, my gifted and talented soil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so cool. I loved visiting Leah's farm. It yeah. was super, super exciting. It was such a treat. But I did have a question while we were there. Mm-hmm. Is it actually possible for big commercial farms to pick up these same techniques that Leah is using? Because Leah's farm, it's not representative of most commercial agriculture in the United States. <laughs> That's definitely true. For one thing, it's much smaller than most commercial farms in the U.S., right? It's only about 10 acres of land that they have under cultivation. Yeah. And the average commercial farm in the U.S. is way bigger, like over 400 acres. And also the farming, the actual production of food is only one part of what they're doing at Soulfire. She also runs a nonprofit that's funded in part by grants and program fees. She has this program that delivers fresh produce from her farm to low-income people in the surrounding areas. She runs classes, workshops on the farm. So Leah's whole operation is pretty different from what we'd think of typically as a commercial farm, where they depend for much of their income on selling the crops they're growing. Because here at Soulfire Farm, most of the money that runs the place and pays for the staff and the programs, a lot of that is funded through their nonprofit work. In other words, it's awesome that Leah is able to do this kind of regenerative farming. But would these same techniques work on a large-scale farm that is competing with other large-scale farms out there? Mm -hmm. Like, could you run a commercial operation that looks like most commercial farming in the United States and use these same techniques? I'm so glad you asked, Alex, because in the second half of today's episode, (laughs) 
we're actually going to answer that question. Yeah, we talked to a couple of farmers who have nearly a thousand acres of land and who've been farming the same land the same way for over a century. And these farmers, they never really thought that much about the environment or the climate. But now, I mean, when we talked to them, they sounded like hippie eco freaks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd put it quite that way. Um, Maybe it's a little strong. But our conversation with Don and Grant Breitkreitz on how regenerative agriculture is not just good for the environment, but also for their bottom line, that's coming up after the break. Welcome back to How to Save a Planet. So we promised you we'd be meeting two farmers in this episode. So let's meet our second set of farmers. Why don't you start by introducing uh, yourselves? I'm Grant, Bright Crates. I'm his wife, Dawn. (laughs) We, well, we farm and we ranch, but we farm and ranch way different than most of our neighbors. Grant and Dawn live outside of Redwood Falls, Minnesota. It's a rural area a few hours west of Minneapolis. And initially, at least to me, Grant and Don seemed very different from Leah Penniman. Um, For one, their farm is much bigger, almost a thousand acres, and it's very commercial. They grow big commercial crops like corn and soybeans. They raise cattle, and they've been on the same land for four generations now, as opposed to Leah, who is a first-generation farmer. And Grant and Don and most of their neighbors who are farming on a larger scale, they've been essentially farming the same way for generations. Lots of plowing, which is, again, a type of tillage. So 20-plus years ago when Don and I started out, we bought out my parents. And at the time, I was farming with a very large, very large conventional farming operation. And we got the opportunity to take over mom and dad, so we bought them out and... uh, we continued down that path, and How, like, what was the farm that you that you took over operation of? Full tillage, monocrop, you know, corn, soybeans, wheat, alfalfa. That's all we grew. And you're just pulling these gigantic tills through the soil, making these big furrows. And you're, and it's attached to a tractor. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Attached to a tractor. Actually, what in the spring of the year, what we're using that tillage pass to do is to level things, level uh-huh. and smooth things, uh-huh. so the planting equipment runs smooth. Uh-huh. And then you've got rows of crops and you're running tillage equipment in between those rows to destroy the weeds that are coming. Uh-huh. Yeah, life life for us at that time was just burn as much diesel fuel as you could through equipment to get it all done. I mean, that's that's what we did. Uh-huh. We just lived in machinery. Plus spray. Plus spray. One pass of herbicide at the time. So lots of plowing, right? Mm -hmm. And then plus, they were doing tons of spraying, right? Like they were spraying herbicide and pesticides. Yeah, there's a lot going on. It was a lot of work and sometimes quite toxic. And they also had a bunch of cows, and they're raising them, again, in this industrial Western approach where they would have them on pasture eating grass. But when the grass was gone, they'd bring the cows inside and feed them tons of grain, which they had to purchase. Right. And so they had, they were telling us all these expenses. They had to Mm -hmm. pay for the grain for the cows. They had to pay for the fertilizers and herbicides. They had to pay for the equipment that they needed to do all the plowing. They had to pay for the fuel to put in that equipment. So Don and Grant both had to work off their farm to pay for all the expenses of running their farm. I was working um, for a another farmer. He did aerial spraying and, and another little uh, side side business. So I was basically an office person full time. 
and then I would work just odd jobs, just <laughs> stupid, stupid hours, usually trucking at night. I mean, Dawn would get home from work. She'd do the harvest with my mom and my dad if they were around. And I'd be going trucking somewhere, helping haul sugar beets or gravel or something in the local community. So then I'd get home at 10, 11 o'clock at night and try to help in the dark with whatever we could till we couldn't do it no more and take a nap and start it all over again the next day. Take a nap. In other words, what most people call going to bed. (laughs) (laughs) You were like, you were working. (laughs) Seriously, a nap. I mean, one to two hours of sleep a night was not uncommon for us the first five years. And the cycle of working nonstop, taking out loans, they even refinanced the farm, getting deeper and deeper into debt, all of that continued until this one moment when things changed for them. That moment was this big freeze in 1997. Not a metaphorical freeze. No, no. It actually got really cold. (laughs) Exactly. And things were extremely frozen. (laughs) Right. And it was in the fall around the time they'd usually be doing this first pass with the plow to get ready to plant their crops. But because the ground was frozen solid, they couldn't do that this time. And so in desperation, they bought this piece of machinery that Grant had heard about, something called a no-till drill. It's a machine that plants seeds directly into untilled soil. And Ayanna, I found a picture of it online here. I'm going to share it with you. Ooh. Just follow that Ecosia link I sent you. You Ecosia'd no-till drill. (laughs) It's it's an attachment that would go on the back of a tractor that looks like it has these little discs that don't, they're not angled to turn over the soil, but just to sort of like puncture it. Puncture it, and then they plant the seeds directly into untilled ground. So they don't they don't turn it over. But it's a big piece of machinery, basically, that you stick on the back of a, of a tractor. Yeah. And Grant and Don, they started using that. 1998, we bought a no-till drill to, to seed soybeans. And so it's instead of go- taking that big machine that turns up the soil and, like, levels everything, you were just like, you, the field looked to your conventional eyes as, like, this is a, this field's a mess. It hasn't been turned up. It just looks like a field that's been left to lie there. And you planted directly into that field with this drill. And was it weird doing that for the first time? Like doing it a different way for the first time in your life? Oh, yeah. It, <laughs> we were immediately called the lazy farmers in the neighborhood. What? <laughs> <laughs> you sound like the least lazy people ever. <laughs> From a conventional standpoint, it does seem like laziness. Like you didn't even till it. Why are you just plunking it down in a field that's not ready? Don, how did you feel about it? Were you nervous? No, I wasn't nervous. You got to realize I didn't grow up on the farm, so I didn't have the the holdbacks that, you know, the ties that he had to um, the past farming, you know, methods or whatever. I was mm-hmm. all about finding some new stuff, learning new, you know, let's do it a different way. You bought the drill, you're trying it out. What about that, the result of that made you want to continue to experiment? Just the Massive amount of cost savings. Remember all that plowing Don and Grant used to have to do? A couple tilling passes in the fall, then another one in the spring, and then one or two more as the crops were growing to cut down the weeds? All that plowing costs money. Mm-hmm. You have to buy the fuel for the tractors that pull the plows. And plus, it adds wear and tear to all that machinery. You have to repair them or replace them. With no-till planting... It's less expensive. They still have to use machinery to plant the seeds, but they have to use way less of it, way fewer passes. And so they're saving a bunch of money. 
was like a little trick, right? Way less work, way less use of super expensive equipment, and better results. And so Grant and Don started looking more into this whole no-till thing. This was the late 90s. There were no YouTube tutorials online. So they just started asking around. And eventually they found other farmers in the Midwest they could learn from. Farmers who were practicing the same kinds of regenerative farming that Leah Penniman showed us when we were on her farm visiting last summer. They learned about planting cover crops from a farmer in North Dakota they would visit periodically. And there was a farmer in Missouri who taught them new ways to manage their cattle by letting them graze on these cover crops. And then the cattle would fertilize the soil naturally with their poop. Poop. Remember that technique that Leah Penniman told us about from the geese? Mm-hmm. Super high-tech. Super high-tech. Works with cows, too. <laughs> and they started to notice these changes, like there were parts of their land, these shallow depressions, where they'd never been able to graze their cattle before because it was too swampy. Rain would just roll down the hills and gather there in these puddles. But after they'd been doing this regenerative farming for a couple of years, planting cover crops and then grazing their cattle on them, they noticed this change. All of a sudden, we had swamps and bogs that we could never graze that were, that were now dry. Well, why was that? I couldn't understand it. Well, went to a few more sessions or seminars or something that was going on in the community and understood water infiltration. We were putting a massive amount of vegetation down on the ground, which was feeding the biology in the soil, which now let the soil be able to infiltrate water where the raindrops hit on top of the hill instead of all running to the swamps and bogs at the bottom. Mm. All of a sudden, we understood water infiltration. That was probably the key to it. Water infiltration, the way that water gets absorbed into the soil. Between the roots of the cover crops helping to open up the soil and more little critters and microbes living in the soil and doing their thing, the soil becomes more permeable. We took a piece of land that could only infiltrate, I believe, about six-tenths of an inch of rainfall per hour, And in two short years, we had changed that to eight to as high as 30 inches per hour rainfall infiltration. That is a dramatic change. Yeah, and the more they continued to adopt these regenerative practices, the more benefits they started to notice. Like, there was this moment in 2014. We got the great opportunity to do a a huge experiment here on the farm, basically, with a project called the Pasture Project, where instead of just planting two or three species of cover crops, we planted 14. That was a big step for us. And while we went through this pasture project, they were grateful enough to explain to us what was happening. We had different species of cover crops in there to harvest the different nutrients that were coming either naturally and available in the soil and just needed to be changed into a usable form by plant biology Mm -hmm. or we were using these cover crops to harvest the nutrients coming out of the backside of the cows that were walking across this land. (laughs) And we just saw this go from what we thought was one of our worst pieces of soil to now it was going to be one of our highest producing or the capability of producing the highest possible yields in two short years by changing what we did. So in their earlier farming days, they'd had to apply lots of industrial fertilizers to their crops every year to supply the nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus that the crops needed to grow. But now, by planting the right cover crops, like nitrogen fixers, and letting the cows graze and poop, those nutrients were appearing in the soil naturally. 
We have not applied phosphorus or potassium on our farm for 12 years hmm. because the cover crops are harvest, naturally harvesting, changing them into a readily usable form for our corn crop. We have taken our nitrogen use, our synthetic nitrogen use to grow a bushel of corn from 1.2 pounds per bushel down to 0.2 to 0.4 pounds of synthetic nitrogen to grow a same bushel of corn. And it's not just fertilizer that they're using way less of. It's also pesticides. They don't need as many pesticides because the pests are also controlled naturally by the other animals that are drawn to their farm now, now that it's a healthy ecosystem. All of a sudden, we saw a massive explosion of birds. Huh. We've got birds in the air that blacken the sky for three weeks at a time. So all the birds are feeding off all the insects. Mm -hmm. We have broke the insect pest population through cover crops and crop rotations. We don't deal with those problems on our farm anymore because we've addressed soil health and the biology, the ecosystem that we're managing here. So things are more in balance in terms of insects. So... Two weeks ago here in the upper Midwest, a common problem over the last 10 years has been soybean aphids. Soybean aphids affect the the soybean plant to the point where it will cause economic damage. We have not Mm -hmm. had to spray soybean aphids on our farm for Seven seven years by changing our cropping practice. Every time we spray an insecticide on our land, and this has been researched by people way smarter than me, we're targeting one pest. We're killing 1,700 beneficials. So we don't, we don't spray those products anymore. Overall, our insecticide use has gone to zero. So it was the great realization that it all, as farmers, we're managing an ecosystem and we got to quit looking at just managing for crops, crops, crops. We are managing ecosystems. Grant and Don had arrived separately at the same realization Leah Penniman had that by concentrating on the soil and using this suite of practices that comes under the heading regenerative farming, not tilling, planting cover crops, using animals to fertilize, basically thinking of the farm as part of an ecosystem, the things that they needed to get their crops growing well, they just happened naturally. Grant says that now you can feel the difference when you walk through the fields. The pollinators in these cover crops, as we're going through grazing them with the cattle, are so loud on a quiet morning, you can all you can hear is pollinators buzzing from our yard. Just a buzz, yeah. As we're going through moving the livestock through these 14 species of cover crops, you're just covered in cobwebs. Cobwebs from all the spiders, which, like the birds, also control the pests and are an indicator in general of overall ecosystem health. Grant and Don are also cutting way down on fungicide and herbicide use, with the goal, they say, of getting to zero chemicals one day. And when Grant and Don talk about their farm, the pride, you can just hear it. They look at their fields with these 14 different species of cover crops and cows pooping everywhere and the stalks from the harvested corn just sitting there unplowed and the glorious spider webs everywhere, and they see a miracle. But their neighbors, their neighbors see something else entirely. If they were looking at it, they, they'd say it was a weedy mess, that it was, it was just a field of weeds. We were at her great aunt and uncle's place for a family celebration, and her great aunt walked right up to us and said, how's the lazy farmers doing? 
And I, <gasps> I said, June, well, I said, what do you mean? And she says, well, you're too lazy to till your corn stalks. She, she says, you, you just must be lazy farmers. Wow. wow. How was she saying that? How was, what was the tone? <laughs> just in the way a great aunt with an attitude would say it. <laughs> How does that make you feel? Uh, by that time, we were pretty used to it already. And we, we realized that we were going to take a lot of those kind of comments from the community that we farm and live in. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it hasn't stopped. It, no. In fact, it's it, if they're not talking now, we're not pushing ourselves hard enough. Hmm. If, mm-hmm. if we don't have the community talking about what we're changing and doing on our farm, we're not pushing ourselves hard enough to change. How have the finances changed? How has... How are the economics of this dramatic turnaround shaping up? Well, in, in this region, you know, in this region, everybody bases things on corn, what it costs to produce a bushel of corn. And so I've taken our data and compared it to our neighbor that'll share his data. We can produce a bushel of corn for $2.59 a bushel. Our neighbors are at about $3.25 to $3.40 a bushel. That's how things have changed. Wow. You know, Don hates, hates raising soybeans. And the farther and farther we get down this path, the more and more profitable soybeans are. Our, our cost of inputs for soybean production is dropped to about $6.35 a bushel to produce a bushel of beans. My neighbors are at about eight ten. In other words, Grant and Don are spending a lot less, 20% less than their neighbors to produce each bushel of corn or soybeans. And that's because they aren't spending all this money on pesticides and diesel fuel for their plowing equipment. Also, they're no longer working second jobs. They said they don't have to do that anymore. And Grant said he no longer has this nagging fear he used to have about the health hazards of working with pesticide-covered seeds. He talked about like what it was like to open up a bag of corn seeds that came pre-coated with this industrial pesticide, wondering, what are all these chemicals doing to me? Do you, do you know how good it feels to dump a bag of seed corn into a planter and not have to worry about the, the, the fungicides and the insecticides that are on that kernel of corn coming back up in your face? You know, I don't have to wear any protective equipment to farm anymore. And that's what you had to do before. You had to like wear like you're supposed you were supposed to, but we didn't. And and, and as far as herbicides, you know, to kill the weeds, mm-hmm. we may spray once every three years now. So there's all these benefits to Grant and Don that they're experiencing every day on their farm. But then of course, there's also this huge benefit of all of this as a climate solution. You asked them about that. Yeah, and I was kind of tiptoeing up to the question because it had been almost two hours into the interview and it hadn't come up yet. So I was kind of nervous. Right. Like bringing it up felt somehow impolite in that in the way that it sometimes does to bring up political things. Yeah. Like, you don't want to talk about religion or politics or sex at the dinner table kind of thing. And I was like, you know, in their house, so to speak. Yes. Well, and you modeled what we should all do in those situations. You got over your discomfort and you asked them the question. Very gently. (laughs) One of the things that we've been talking to some others about is along the lines of the importance of soil health is that healthier soils, when they're restored, can also hold a lot more carbon. They absorb more carbon out of the air. They hold it in the soil. Is that 
benefit this um, this sort of climate and carbon aspect of it? Is that part of what you think about? Is is climate part of your thinking when it comes to regenerative? This is this has gotten to be huge for me. Everything we're dealing with in the United States, in the world, comes right back to soil health. In, in our particular region of Minnesota here where we farm, we have found undisturbed prairies that have never had a plow. They're at 12% organic matter. Organic matter is a measure of carbon. Dawn and I were farming some soils that would have been at 12% before man plowed that were down in the one high 1%. So in our short history of plowing and growing cereals and grains to feed the world, look what we've done. We all survive on carbon. We have to have carbon. We have to have carbon in the soil to survive. So we've gone from 12% to 2% in a short hundred and some odd years of farming. How much time do we really have left? And if Dawn and I would have kept doing what we were doing for the last 15 to 20 years on that land, I'll bet we would be down in the high 1%. On that land. So we would have taken another percentage of carbon away. At the same time, what Don and I have done over the last 15 years, that soil is now at 5% organic matter. We have put one fourth of it back in there. You can talk about climate change all you want, the climate, you know, we're warming, we're cooling. I don't care. I farm. The climate changes every single day of my life. Every single year, I deal with a different climate. And the more and the faster Dawn and I improve our soil biology, the health of our soil, the less the climate change affects us. All of this, of course, raises a big question. If this way of farming regeneratively is so beneficial, not just personally, but also globally, if Grant and Dawn are restoring carbon to the soil while also working less and feeling like their health is more protected, if it's more profitable, why aren't all their neighbors jumping on the bandwagon? Like, what is the holdup? Can you hear the incredulousness in my voice? Yeah, I can hear it. (laughs) Well, it's really weird, right? It just feels like, wait a minute, the way you're talking about it, it just seems like... like, Why would we not all be doing this? This seems like the obviously better thing. (laughs) And part of it goes back to something we talk about all the time on this podcast, policy. There is a whole tangle of federal farm policies in the United States which can get in the way of adopting regenerative practices. And we could do a whole podcast on that, and we will at some point. So definitely policy is a big part of this, but also there's just human nature. As humans, what's the hardest things for us to do? Admit we're wrong Mm -hmm. and change. That's the two things as humans we have the biggest problem with. So, and, and I've struggled with this the whole way along. I have to admit, I was wrong. I thought I was so damn right, but I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And then the second part is, is that I had to change. And we've made those changes. So from a human being mental aspect, that's the part we're dealing with there. Granddad paid for the land this way. Dad hung on to it. And now, damn it, son, you're going to do everything the way I did to hang on to it. And we see this in our neighborhood, in our community. I'll give you a good 
a good example is we when Don and I got married, we joined a small community rural church here. Mm-hmm. The people that we'd visit with in the back of the church, this is a rural church. I mean, there was some school teachers there. There was some retired farmers, but for the most part, it was all farmers. So for 20 plus years, I stood in the back of this church and talked to another guy that had started no-tilling about the time we did. Hmm. And at the same time, there was another member of the church that would that farmed, actively farmed, and he would listen to Bob and I talk back and forth about what we're trying on our farms and how it's turning out. 21 years of this discussion, he finally shows up one day in our farm office and says, I've listened to you guys for 20 plus years. I'm 59 years old. I need to change because it's not working. Wow. That's one one family out of all the families we went to church with. You know, so wow. there's there is only three of us families that are now taking this approach. That, that's the dynamics you deal with in agriculture. We don't have time to do sort of to convert one farmer every 20 years. <laughs> yeah. You know. We're going to have to move a little faster than that. Yes. And, you know, the good news is that, like, no-till farming practices are being adopted at a higher rate in the United States than I was aware of. It's over 30% of farms are now using some sort of method of no-till farming. Yeah, that's Um, a great start. But it varies a lot by state. Mm -hmm. So Minnesota, where the Breitkreutzes are, is one of the lowest um, no-till states in, in the country. Another pretty low one is California, where a lot of the country's agriculture is located. And so the question is, like, what can we do to accelerate the transition to regenerative practices? That is indeed the question. And (laughs) as always, we're here to help you become more deeply informed and find ways to be part of the solution. So we've got a list of a few things you can do, and links will be in our show notes and in our newsletter. So please check these out. All right. So if you want to learn more about regenerative farming, maybe you're a farmer yourself and you want to learn more about this, a good all-purpose resource is the Soil Health Institute. It's a nonprofit which has lots of resources, and we will have a link to that site. And we'll also throw some YouTube videos in there featuring the teachers who helped Grant and Don learn about regenerative farming. Yeah. You may also be inspired after listening to this episode to support farmers of color, in which case we would direct you to the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, which is a coalition of a lot of organizations that are figuring out how to get more black farmers trained and farming the land again. So we'll throw in a link to that as well. Lots of resources um, on their website. And I'd love to encourage you to check out Leah Penniman's book, which is called Farming While Black. And that's brimming with great information on her Afro-Indigenous-inspired approach to farming. And it's a beautiful book. And of course, like always, um, there's things that we can do on our own, and then there's things that require policy. Policy! Nowhere is that probably more true than in the agricultural system, which is one of the most cockamamie, heavily subsidized parts of of the U.S. economy. And all of that is— an underused word. Cockamamie. Cockamamie. Really applies to a lot of things when it comes to getting climate (laughs) solutions to become real. Yeah. And a lot of um, the craziness is encapsulated in the farm bill. And the U.S. in the Congress is going to be considering the new farm bill soon. And there's lots of subsidies in there that could do a lot 
to actually make things a little bit smarter and incentivize adoption of these regenerative practices. And we're talking about a lot of money. Like even just in the stimulus package last year in March, there were over $20 billion went to support farmers. So just imagine how much we could accelerate the recovery of ecosystem health and soil carbon sequestration if that massive bill were used in that way. Also, keep your eyes out for the Justice for Black Farmers Act, which is likely to be reintroduced in this new Congress, and that would support things like training and access to land for Black farmers. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for windows of opportunity to push your elected officials to get on board with this. For now, there is this super helpful blog post from the World Resources Institute that will get you up to speed on the issues and the kinds of things that we would want to see in, in the new Farm Bill. And we'll post a link to that. I also wanted to recommend a film. There's a new film called Kiss the Ground, which is all about agriculture and the carbon sequestering power of soil as a climate solution. And although, obviously, Alex, we are devoted to the magic of audio, sometimes it is actually really helpful to see what all this looks like in practice. I I have no idea what you're talking about. What is this film thing you speak of? Moving images. I don't know. It's really weird. (laughs) Pictures with audio? Overrated. Probably, but yeah. Malarkey. (laughs) <laughs> and and a lot of you have actually sort of emailed to recommend that that film and so we're happy to amplify that yep. and then some of you also email asking for book recommendations doc you have some uh well my mom does um, my mother, who is an organic and regenerative farmer, recommends a book called Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown, who's one of the farmers that Grant and Don learned a bunch from. Mm-hmm. And my mother's review is specifically, excellent job demonstrating best regenerative farm practices, great for gardeners and every food consumer to know. Mm-hmm. And it's published by Chelsea Green, which puts out a lot of books on agriculture. So it's worth checking out their whole roster. And lastly, my mother wanted to give a shout out to Acres Magazine, this great farming magazine for people who want to stay up to date on the latest. Those are good uh, recommendations, and you're a very good daughter. Thanks, Louise. <laughs> So we covered a lot in this episode, and there's way more to discuss around agriculture. So we will definitely be coming back to this in future episodes. Check out our Calls to Action archive for all the actions we've recommended on the show. That's at howtosaveaplanet.show slash actions. You can also sign up for our newsletter at howtosaveaplanet.show and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at howtosaveaplanet with the number two. You can send us your questions at howtosaveaplanet.show slash contact. And finally, one note to our listeners. Every week on this show, we try to take these big, complicated climate topics and turn them into something digestible and actionable and understandable. And a few weeks ago, in our efforts to make things understandable, we got a couple things wrong. In the episode, Can I Switch to Renewables as a Renter? We talked about something called the rec market, and we oversimplified how it worked and its impact. We stated that a company called Clean Choice Energy was buying a lower quality type of REC, or Renewable Energy Certificate, in New York, and this was wrong. They're buying the same kind of REC that a utility in New York has to buy, RECs that comply with the state's renewable portfolio standard, and basically what that means is Clean Choice and some other ESCOs do help spur some renewable energy development counter to what we said in the episode. 
We plan to pick apart the details of these markets more in depth in the future, but for now, we have decided to take this episode down. We're sorry to all of our listeners for getting that wrong. Okay, on to the credits. How to Save a Planet is a Spotify original podcast and Gimlet production. It's hosted by me, Alex Bloomberg. And me, Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. Our reporters and producers are Kendra Pierre-Lewis, Rachel Waldholtz, Anna Ladd, and Felix Poon. Our senior producer is Lauren Silverman. Our editor is Caitlin Kenny. Sound design and mixing by Peter Leonard with original music by Emma Munger and Billy Libby. And we want to give a very special thanks this week to Dr. Jane Delacova, a research professor with the University of Wyoming, for giving us the inside scoop on soil science. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week. See ya. See ya.